Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast. Welcome back from the 4th of July. So we run <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Dad, uh, you didn't you didn't give any spiel on what the Invested Podcast is about. I really should because who knows who's jumping <laughs> into this first, right? <laughs> I just really enjoy your little like <laughs> impromptu spiel every time. Well, I kind of miss it. Especially in front of this one. We're we're talking about how to invest the way Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and I do it. And uh, we've talked to investors like Guy Spear and Manesh Pabrai and a whole group of people that are following Munger and Buffett into what we call Rule One Investing. And today we're going to talk about the Amazon uh, purchase of Whole Foods and what that means in terms of how to value the business when, since they bought it for a set price. And a little bit about the emotions you go through when your favorite wonderful business that you're going to own the rest of your life suddenly gets snatched right out of your hands. That's, That's right, of, which is what happened to me. That's right. Uh, yeah, so well, we talked about... what happened to you is that, you know, the upside of, of getting a thing snatched out of your hands is often that you just made a bunch of money. And I don't know how long you've owned Whole Foods, but it's, I think, less than a year. And I think you just made about 50% uh, on it. I'd have to think how long. I'm not exactly sure the answer to how long, but um, yeah, somewhere around a year probably. Yep. And um, and I think I made forty two percent. Well, I figured it out, but then I, in the grand tradition of me, I immediately forgot what I made. Do you remember what you bought it for? Uh, like twenty nine something. Okay, and do you remember if you got any any dividends? No. You don't remember, I, but you did. I don't did. think I got any dividends. Yeah, I think you did. I don't think I did. Didn't Whole Foods pay dividends last year? Pretty sure. Let's take a quick look here. So your your overall return is going to depend on your basis, right? And your basis is what you paid for it. And then your return is what you got back, which would include dividends. And um, buybacks, of course, are just going to be calculated into the overall uh, return that you got when you sell your stock. So let's go. What I'm going to do to figure this out is I'm going to go onto Google and I'm going to say Whole Foods, which is WFM, typing that in, and then I'm going to say dividends, WFM okay. dividends. And it comes back and tells me what they paid out in cash dividends. Um, and I, you may be right here. Let's well, I go. feel like I would have noticed if some money just showed up. I mean, admittedly, I never, ever look at my trading account, like, ever. But I still feel like I would have noticed at some point, like maybe when I sold the stock, I would have noticed that there was a little extra cash. I hate to tell you, but you didn't notice. Oh, is there a dividend? And they paid, yeah. Oh, what did they pay? So they paid you, let's say you've had it for a year, just for round numbers here. So you got it last June. They've paid out five dividends, 13 and a half, 13 and a half, 14, 14, and 18. So that's 27 and 28. That's uh, 27, 28 is 55. Wait, you're just saying numbers. What are you talking about? These are 14 cents they... per share. 13.5 cents per share. You're 14 welcome. cents per share. Okay. So what I'm looking at is when I Googled WFM dividends, I selected the NASDAQ 
which is NASDAQ, the NASDAQ Why website. Why did you do that? Because I've used it a lot to find dividend information, and it's quite good. So, you know, some websites okay. just display the information quicker and better than others. And NASDAQ Well, and isn't it. Whole Foods also traded on the NASDAQ? So it makes sense that they would have Whole Foods information. It would indeed. So it does NASDAQ be. have information like that on stocks that are not traded on the NASDAQ? Uh, another very good question. Let me just see here. So I'm going to put oh. in IBM, which is not traded on the NASDAQ. And let's find out what happens. So, and indeed, IBM data comes up quite quickly. Ah. So then, it's going to cover all the listed stocks. With, yeah, words, yeah, yeah. Now I'm wondering if Whole Foods is even traded on NASDAQ. All I know is that I always click on NASDAQ too, which made me assume that it was traded on the NASDAQ. Uh, usually the NASDAQ stocks have four four letters in their symbol. So MSFT, oh. right? And Whole so Foods doesn't. So then it wouldn't be traded on the NASDAQ. Yeah. I think it might have been at one time and then they moved it or something. So let's just go back to this little discussion. Let's say you bought, bought this last June. You would have picked up a dividend uh, on the fourth um, of June. Now, if you bought it actually in June, chances are you didn't get paid that fourth of June dividend because you probably didn't own it before the what they call the X dividend date. The what X is that the X dividend date is the date on which if you bought the stock. You don't get the dividend. So the so if you buy it on, so it's every day up to that day, but not including that day. That's right. So the ex dividend day is essentially the day after the last day you buy the stock or own the stock, you'll still get the dividend. So um, and since the ex dividend day usually comes, you know, a few several days or a few weeks ahead of the actual dividend date then that gives them time to clear everything then or who owns what right they want to make sure they know who owns what then the dividend paid on june 4th it's likely if you bought the stock in june even june 1st 2nd or 3rd that would not have been before the x dividend date so you probably wouldn't have collected the dividend on june 4th so i'm going to say if you've owned it a year you've uh, only collected well you've collect i thought almost you maybe almost collected an extra one there no <laughs> Um, You're just so, making up dates. No, I almost. It, I actually was. I was reading it backwards. This was April 6th, not June 4th. Oh. So forget that. So it would have been June 29th. And chances are, if you bought it in the first part of June, you would have been fine before the ex-dividend date. And then that means you would have collected five of these. So the first two were 13 and a half. So that's 27 cents. The next two were 14 cents. So that's 28 total. That's 55 and then the last one was 18 cents that they're just uh, paid a couple weeks ago on oh. June 28th. So that's well, 18 I'm cents. I'm going to have to go back and look for them and see what they look like in an yeah. account. Yeah, uh, they just put it in there. Um, so that's 60, that's 55 cents and 18 cents, which is 73. So you've at this point collected 73 cents. You'll probably collect at least another one or two. This this transaction probably won't close until the end of the year. So I'm going to put in another couple more of these 18s, which is 36 cents. And essentially, you got a, a, dollar, nine, a dollar nine worth of dividends. But that's not dividends. true because I already sold the stock. Ah, that's true. You did sell the stock. So 
that would be actually one of the disadvantages of selling the stock quickly, <laughs> <laughs> which I had forgotten Something about. Something you could have told me when two I weeks sold ago. the stock quickly. But I wanted to I wanted to just capture the sale, right? So by going ahead with this, even though the sale isn't absolutely one thousand percent confirmed. Um, I've avoided the problems with the government getting involved. Somehow they always manage to get into these things. Nobody knows why. Um, and so we may have given up 36 cents there. But in general, by selling now, you picked up a little more than $42 because you sold when it was about 42.36. A little bit above 42, right? I yeah, but so. how do you know it was 42.36? Are you just saying that? Yeah, ballparking. Because okay. it went clear up to 43 for a brief right. period of time. So let's just say that's a wash, which we could easily say. I, in fact, I just said it. That's a wash. <laughs> and so, I mean, just saying, in order to make coherent what I've been mumbling about here is that the opportunity to sell the stock at 42 uh, came with the offer and the acceptance, <clears throat> uh, the offer from Amazon to buy at 42.00 and the acceptance by John Mackey and the board at Whole Foods to approve that, then their speculators jumped in and drove the stock price above 42 up into 43. Yeah, which I found really surprising. I mean, the deal price was 42. Why on earth would anyone buy that stock for more than 42? Pure speculation. By definition, they're going to lose money as soon as the stock as soon as the company sells. I mean, it just, it blows my mind. So that happened and I immediately called you and said, what am I missing? Why are people buying this stock above 42? And I really thought there must be some like secret financial world reason for that. And it was freaking me out that I didn't know. No, there is sort of a secret financial world thing of that. The gamble is that the, the bid that was accepted by John Mackey and his board would be rejected by the shareholders because someone else, like a Costco, would come in with a bid of $50 a share. So there was a yeah. secret financial thing. But gradually, the the emotion around that fantasy idea has, has, has dissipated. And now, I don't think anybody thinks that's going to happen. And so the price is back down to almost exactly 42. Yeah, it's almost exactly... Exactly. Like it's not thirty nine point nine eight. It's I think like forty two point zero one. Right, which tells me that there's still some speculation going on out there. Right, forty two zero one or forty two zero two is a little bit high. It should be more like a third, a forty one ninety five or a forty one ninety six. Right, and the reason for that is because there once the deal is definitely going to happen then some people are going to start selling because mm. there's no point in waiting for 42 if you can get 42. Mm -hmm. Why would you not take your money, right? So as soon as there's no possibility well, somebody yeah. else is going to come in, then people will, will sell. Well, why take your money? I guess you're going to collect another one or two uh, dividends. So that would keep the stock price up there. Um, but often the stock price will fall down a little bit below the deal price and sit there uh, as, as people go ahead and take their profits. I'm really interested to see what happens to the stock price. I'm going to try to watch it, even though I uh, often forget to watch stock prices. But um, 
I'm actually going to try to watch it because this is a good education for me on what happens in a public company sale from start to finish. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very different. I know you say this stuff a lot. It's very different to go through something when it's you and your own investment and your own money than it is just watching the news. I mean, obviously, public companies are bought and sold regularly. And I've seen that happen and I've tracked them. And I still have no clue why the price went up above the deal price. You know, I just had never noticed that particular strange little feature of buying a company or selling a company. So it's a good uh, exercise for me to follow this one and get a sense of what happens when a company is sold. Yep. And it, it'll, it, it is another indication that the idea that everyone's operating, you know, totally rationally at all moments for everything that's known, um, it has another flaw to it. And that is that there just can be so much that's unknown. I mean, and so you've got gamblers who are coming into this market and driving the price, right? They're just saying, hey, I think Costco is going to come in and bid 50. And yeah. I'm going to make this big score. And then a yeah. couple of weeks go by and there's nothing from Costco. I mean, in those two weeks, nothing has happened that says that Costco isn't going to come in and pay 50. And yet the price yeah. has come down by a dollar. So how can it possibly be some rational you know, thing going on there if nothing's changed with Costco? Nobody knows anything about whether Costco is going to bid here. And yet I mean, the that's the bottom line. Exactly. Nobody knew that Amazon and Whole Foods were talking. Nobody knows who else is doing anything regarding talks or offers. Nobody knows if this deal is going to go through. I mean, I've been through enough private company deals to know that this is just the beginning and deals break down a lot. Deals break I think down. this one will go through, but you know, that's also just my opinion. I don't have any facts behind that except knowing the players and thinking that they're probably going to be able to reach a deal together. Well, they've they've reached a deal and and well, they've reached a, a price, step. but they haven't they haven't gotten the final deal. That's right. There's still the vote that has to happen with the shareholders. And then, of course, the issue becomes a lot less speculative if you've got somebody like John Mackey with a big block of stock who's mm-hmm. going to say yes and has a tremendous amount of power among shareholders. Also, that the shareholders are making a profit over the current price of the stock when, when the stock... Mm-hmm. And Warren Buffett does a whole thing where he invests for many years back before information became so uh, quickly available to everyone uh, with the internet. He used to do a lot of merger arbitrage, which is... Oh, really? Yeah. A lot of it was it was his big speculative play, along oh. with options, that nobody knows much about, except that he did it a lot and would would have something like 30 or 40 different merger arbitrage positions going on at any given time. And essentially okay, so what he was what, doing... what is a merger arbitrage? Well, you take a deal like Amazon and Whole Foods, that's called a merger... Uh-huh. And it has a set price of $42 at the end. It has a certain amount of time before that uh, price will be realized by the buyers or the owners of Whole Foods. And during that time, um, there may be some speculation that this isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? There's, there may be sure. risk involved sure. that this is not going to happen. And as a result, the stock price may initially jump up toward 42 maybe 42, and then slides down as maybe news comes along that says that the government is going to review this 
and then it, the price goes to let's say forty dollars. Okay, so if the if the stock price drops below the deal price, that's when you start thinking arbitrage. Exactly, and you're essentially doing a time and information arbitrage. You're saying, okay, this I has see. a set gain of of uh, to forty two dollars is where I'm going to sell it. If I buy it today, how long is this time, and how much is the risk? Understood. And you you can make a calculation that we do almost exactly like we do with our our calculations for options trading where we calculate the probability of that trade going through. So this is what Buffett, of course, is quite good at. He would get information, what's the, what's the odds of this deal happening? And then what do you win if you win? And then you know you're going to only win 42 if you win. And where does the stock price go if you lose? And the stock price will likely go back to where it was priced before the deal was announced. Right. Yeah. So or whole, below even. It might, oh, it might sink below for a little bit of time, but it, it ultimately, the stock price before the deal was announced might be the reasonable expectation for your downside. So let's say Whole Foods was at thirty-four, and let's say it actually was about thirty-two. Let's say it was at thirty-two. So thirty-two is your downside, forty-two is your upside, and the stock is at forty, and you have to give it a probability, right? So if you said, well, it's ninety percent. I mean, it, just to put this in perspective, you say it's 99% is going to do it. And you've only got, let's say, three months before the deal closes or a quarter of a year. You have almost certainty that you're going to make $2 hmm. on a potential loss of eight. Mm -hmm. Right? So you run this calculation to see if that's a good bet or not. And uh, we actually play with that in class. I'm not going to get that in, into this here, but it's a it's a fun calculation to figure out whether or not that's a that's a fair bet. I, I so can lose eight. It's a probability. Eight. It's a probability calculation. Yeah, and 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 a win loss calculation. So I can only win two, and I can lose eight, maybe more. But let's just say eight, um, because I'm going to go. I bought it at forty, and now it's going to thirty two. So. Yeah. I win too. The two, chances I could lose of it. it doing that are very are low. A 99% so. chance I'm going to win and a 1% yeah. chance I'm going to lose. So you can run a calculation that tells you if that's a good bet. Probably that's a good bet. So that's super interesting. So when he was when Buffett was doing that, maybe does he still do it? I think there's very few opportunities where it, he can get enough money into the arbitrage now to make sense. He did it back uh, in the 60s and 70s when, he when was there was a lot with less money. Lot, much less money and much less information flow. So yeah. today, so much is known about everything that's going on. These these arbitrage opportunities close very quickly. So, so when he was yeah. back when he was doing it, I mean that's not value investing. That's that's not choosing a, a wonderful company that you love and think is going to do way better in the future. That's just pure guessing slash speculation. That's called trading, <laughs> <laughs> which is a nicer word than gambling. A, yeah, I like how all of a sudden you've gotten away from our investing versus speculation discussion. I know. It, it is absolutely speculation. It, it is speculation with a brain, right? I mean, there are people who go to the horse race track who make a, a fortune betting on horses because they have a tremendous amount of information. So speculation doesn't mean you're going to lose money. It means that you're gambling. And you, if you can do it with an edge, which is the gambler's term for having information that is not included in the, in the probabilities of success here, 
Mm-hmm. Um, then your true probability can be very different than what the market's pricing in the gamble. And if you can get a lot of those, you can come out really good. And that's why um, Las Vegas doesn't like to have single deck blackjack tables anymore because so many people know how to count cards and reset the probabilities. And so <laughs> they can change their bet according to the probabilities. They can beat the house. And, and that, of course, is uh, the result of a, a work done by Ed Thorpe at MIT, who wrote the book Beat the Dealer. And, and you know, the movie was made about him, a movie called 21. And it's fascinating that this guy could not play in Las Vegas and make money because they would catch him and throw him out and beat him up and all this stuff which is what they can, they don't beat you up anymore. They just make sure that you don't get on their tables. But he went on to the stock market and as a full-time professor at University of California, Irvine, teaching mathematics, he ran his own hedge fund, which mm. gives you an idea that you can run one part-time and do pretty well. He ended up making two or $300 million running his oh, hedge yeah. fund. can do pretty well. He did all right. And he comp- his compounded rate of return was 28% per year, average, for 30 years, 25, 30 years. It would, no, every single year or is that an Oh, you said average. Average. But yeah. here's the most amazing thing is that, you know, really knowing what he was doing um, in terms of the kinds of options and margin and uh, uh, options trades he was using, he ended up having zero losing quarters and zero losing months. Wow. He never had a losing month. What what's the definition of that? Like he didn't ever not beat the market, or he didn't ever like lose money, or no? There were times when the market beat him, but he's okay. the definition in what we in what how we term it is called an absolute return. So if you're trying to beat the market, you can beat the market and still lose everybody's money. If the market goes down fifty percent and your money goes down forty percent. Mm-hmm. Amazingly, your financial advisor or fund manager will get a raise. <laughs> you want to shoot him, but you're going to get a, give him a raise because he's working on on a, a relative return. He's being compared to the market, to some to some index. Um, mm-hmm. An absolute return says that you did better than zero, so you had a positive return, and so okay. he never had a month without a positive return. That's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. It's a stunning record. And it would be, you could attribute it to his genius, which he should. I mean, he he basically was the guy who invented what came to be called the Black-Scholes formula. Mm. Um, he wrote it up in a paper for University of California, Irvine, and it was read by Black, who then did the math behind it because he you know, this guy didn't want to do the math, do all the hard work to prove it all out. He just was using it to make hundreds of millions of dollars. And Black used it to get a Nobel Prize. Then Black tried to be a hedge fund manager, built a company called Long-Term Capital, and failed and almost wiped out the U.S. Federal Reserve by having so much leverage. The Federal Reserve had to come in and save the U.S. financial system from Black's hedge fund in 1997. Unbelievable story called, the story is about long-term capital. And you should read it if you want to read a real crazy story about a guy who got a Nobel Prize, then went in and actually tried to invest using the strategies that he got the Nobel Prize for, which is efficient market hypothesis, and almost wiped out the U.S. economy in the process. Pretty cool. I just hear, I hear those, (laughs) I hear that story and I'm just like, God, another bloody 
financial meltdown thanks yeah. to some guy. Like, it's just like, come on. There's a YouTube video you should watch, hon. Um, just like Google Warren Buffett long-term capital. Yeah, so so Buffett was talking about the 14 principles in long-term capital and how two of them were Nobel Prize winners, two or three of them were Nobel Prize winners for efficient market hypothesis. And the rest of the guys were all just true believers and knew what they were doing. They're all expert investors. And here's what Buffett said was amazing, is that they were such true believers in this nonsense formula that they had that he's, you know, been calling BS on for 40 years, um, that they put everything they owned into this fund and and they all got wiped out. They were multi, these guys were multi, multi-millionaires and got wiped out by, effectively, by the efficient market hypothesis. It was such an amazing irony here. That this that is what Buffett talked about, that they yeah. got wiped out by using, by basically thinking that markets are efficient. Yeah. Exactly. That would be interesting to watch. Yeah, I would like to watch cool. that, and then I would like to discuss that. Okay, Google that up. Yeah, and in fact, so everybody at home, you can, you you can Google that up. Um, let me see if I can I can spot it here. I'm going to just Google Buffett Long Term Capital, and it comes up. It's actually a copied YouTube video all over the net. There's all kinds of places where it it uh, it's been copied over. Sure. So you should read that. You should you should listen to that. It's a really really sobering view of what can happen when you get so deeply into this sort of, your theory doesn't really fit the real world, but you keep applying it anyway. Yeah, I'd I'd be interested in that because we talk about it a lot, but uh, it makes sense to me, and I've said this before, it makes sense to me why people use it. So I'd be interested to hear what what Buffett has to say about why this particular instance caused a giant crash and meltdown and disaster. Yep, I'm not sure how deeply he goes into it, but I know he just sits, he's standing there just going amazing how smart these guys were and that they didn't have to take these kinds of risks and yet they did it thinking they were risk free, and it turned out they weren't. Yeah, you know? yeah. Okay, Buffett Long Term Capital is yep. the search. I'm yep. going to check it out. Let's all check it out. We're not going to talk about it next time because we've got like Amazon pricing, not Amazon, Whole well, I wanna, Foods. I want to dive into Whole Foods Whole Foods next time. Let's go into what, what this price tells us about the value of Whole Foods. It's really yeah, important so- to know that, that ultimately the value of things should be roughly what people are paying for them, right? Yeah, that's why I wanted to go through this with you because – how did they get to 42? I would exactly. love to know. Exactly. Well, well, we'll never know unless we can sit down with Jeff Bezos and, and John Mackey. <laughs> That's but true. I'm That's pretty true. sure There's that, a little bit of alchemy to these things. I, I'm sure they, they sat down and had a very, very heart-to-heart talk. And I'm sure Mackey wanted more. And I'm sure that Bezos wanted to pay less. That much I can feel pretty good about. I seriously <laughs> doubt that they both went in there and said, 42. Yeah. <laughs> 42 done <laughs> usually doesn't happen like that with 13 billion dollars <laughs> you know a couple pennies here and there's a little serious pocket money so these guys probably negotiated pretty hardcore about it and we can look into what those numbers look like and you know why i thought i would like to buy this stock at 22 23 and um never had an opportunity to do it that's right you did give that number which would be roughly half of this purchase price. Yep. 
about half this purchase price. So I like that because it tells us here our rough formula is working pretty well for figuring out what the margin of safety should be. Because um, the margin of safety is half of half of the what the typical actual value of the business is, and so if they're close to value here, um, then the margin of safety would indicate that would indicate a twenty-one margin of safety. So we're in the ballpark, pretty good. Um, and That's just real cool, quick, Dad, you're yeah, like rushing. That was all right. That's pretty cool. And I think that just real quick to wrap up, you roughly bought this at twenty-nine, and you roughly got a dollar something worth of. Uh, of payments in the form of dividends into your pocket, and you sold it for roughly forty-two something. So ballparking it, that gives you a, a twenty-nine dollar basis minus one dollar that you received back, which leaves you with twenty-eight dollars to re, to still get your money back. And divided into forty-two gives you a fifty percent return. So a gain of fifty percent in about one year would be considered. What's what do you think is the really technical term for making 50% in one year. I call it pretty freaking awesome. <laughs> I was going to say good. It's good. <laughs> yeah. That's I didn't what even it's... get to all my feelings about it, but we can talk about that next time because it was it was really hard to sell this this company. It was really really hard for me. So I I'll tell you. you guys about that next time. I hear you. I want to I'll tell you when Burlington Northern I bought Burlington Northern on the way down aggressively at, you know, from about 65 down to about 55. It went as low as 50. And I was so thrilled. You know, I mean, Buffett was buying it right alongside me the whole way. And so I felt pretty confident that this was going to turn out very, very well. And it was a very good company. And then about nine months later, he stepped in and made an offer of $100 for the whole company. One hundred dollars per share, so I I I didn't quite make a hundred percent return. It was a little bit less than that. About it was about eighty something overall, eighty percent. But I was very disappointed. I know exactly how you feel. I was very disappointed that because of the financials or because you liked the company. So I love the company, and once you find one of these, you'd like to keep it for posterity. I'd like to hand yeah. it down to you and my you and my the grandchildren if they ever show up. So that's 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 one of the disappointing things. So let's talk about that next time. The yeah, emotion of winning. It, it really surprised me. So I think <laughs> the we emotion of winning it. big can be very surprising. And then uh, let's dig into the value of Whole Foods. How we would come about to. Maybe how John and and uh, and Jeff Bezos arrived at that price. Exactly. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, until then, until uh, next week, time to go play. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Bye. guys. See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.